Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name is Christian Allen, and with me as always, my co-host, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. What's up, man? Glad to be here, as always. I think we have a good one today. We do. I think we have a really good one. Okay, so we did something a little bit different, Rod. Um, This is kind of like a niche episode in, in the sense that we had a really focused topic. So we talked to AJ Shaker, director of Provident Healthcare Partners, who and we and our conversation focused on private equity in the healthcare space. Yep. So naturally, it made sense to have an expert in that space. Um, but in addition to AJ, we also brought on a guest host, Dave Ferguson, who is a client and a partner of ours. He owns seventeen dental practices. So he's been really successful in that space. And because of our previous conversations with him, we know that he's been intimately familiar with this with this um, concept idea with what's happening in that space because he's right. been approached by private equity, potential private equity partners. So anyway, we thought it would be really cool to let the two of them um, play off each other a little bit. And I thought they did a nice job of it. Absolutely. So Rod, why don't you give us just a little bit of an overview of who both Dave, who Dave is and who and who AJ is. And then we'll, we'll launch into the interview. Yeah, absolutely. So Dave is, uh, like you said, dentist, orthodontist based out of, uh, San Antonio, Texas and, uh, part, part owner in 17 different practices across five different States. Uh, I think he's been a catalyst in, in really helping a lot of different dentists out there get, get up and going and, and really into a, a really cool model. So that, that's a well, story he in and of itself, but he, absolutely. He also has a model uh, where he's teaching dentists how to do what he's done. Yep. And so he's doing just a whole bunch of really cool stuff from that standpoint. Absolutely. So uh, again, great to have Dave on as, as kind of a guest host and, and for him to be able to see it from the owner side of what, 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 what does this mean, you know, to, to, uh, yeah. uh practicing in this case dentist but it could be any any healthcare professional yep i thought that was really valuable cool okay and then aj shaker so he is a a director of the provident healthcare partners uh where they go in and look at opportunities to to purchase either all or a portion of a practice they do some Mm -hmm. consolidating of of practices into kind of groups uh within the kind of private equity uh format and again, we'll get into more detail on the different ways that they do that. But, but that's ultimately his his focus is mm. kind of uh, helping to do that. Yep. And he did a nice job of answering a bunch of questions. Right. We asked questions like, why are we? Do- why would somebody consider doing it? How do you value yep. businesses? What does the structure look like? Timing. So we got into a bunch of different questions, and and I thought he had some really great insights across the board. And like you said, it was nice to have Dave asking some more pointed questions that we probably wouldn't have thought of. Absolutely. Anyway, really great interview. We enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. We are very excited to have with us AJ Shaker, director of Provident Healthcare Partners. And AJ, I've spent the last couple of days trying to get as much info about you as possible. 
And it sounds like you guys have a pretty cool thing going at Provident Healthcare Partners. Before we jump into that, though, I want to make sure that we get a little bit of your background, how you got to where you are, and and maybe you know things that something you like to do when you're not uh, transacting private equity deals. Absolutely, it's uh, great to be on the podcast. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to participate. And uh, happy to give kind of a quick background on myself anyway. Um, so I grew up in a uh, kind of medically oriented family. My mother was a uh, hospitalist physician, um, had some other family members who were in healthcare. So there's always kind of the, the push to go the healthcare route. Um, but what it, you know happened in my undergrad days is that I got to, uh, I think it was either physics two or uh, organic chemistry two. I can't remember what it was through my pre-med schooling and decided um, I couldn't do the hard sciences anymore. I uh, had a preference for the uh, the business side of healthcare. Um, so uh, credit to Dave and uh, all of his colleagues who were able to get through all those years of schooling. Uh, smarter than the rest of us. Definitely smarter than the rest <laughs> of us and uh, a, a long, hard road to get there. But um, I spent a lot of time in economics, accounting uh, in undergrad and found a nice uh, crossover at Provident where uh, we advise healthcare service companies and, and provider-based groups that are thinking about strategic alternatives, whether that be private equity in nature or merging with a larger strategic player. Uh, we've seen a lot of businesses that uh, have been successful, what the, the drivers of their success were at the same time and, and how that meshes with the overall market. So that kind of aligned nicely with uh, my kind of interest in healthcare to start, as well as my um, kind of finance accounting type background. Um, and uh, when I'm not doing uh, transactions, I uh, love hanging out with my uh, six month old Labradoodle. Uh, he's uh, a lot of fun <laughs> and cool. a lot of energy there. But um, my wife and I live in the uh, Minneapolis St. Paul area. So uh, we like to get outside uh, as much as we can, whether that be, you know, doing travel when we can, um, hiking, playing golf, playing tennis. So uh, mm, nice. I'd say uh, when we get time, that, that's where we uh, we spend our leisure time anyway. Okay, so when I think of Minneapolis, though, I think it's so it's 27 degrees where I'm at. What's the weather like in Minneapolis right now? Are you playing a lot of tennis? <laughs> uh, only indoors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you play like platform tennis outside, which you could still play in like zero to 10 degree weather for yeah. Uh, the, the ones that really <laughs> like that, but, uh, lots of indoor activities these days. Yeah, that, ma that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for kind of giving us a little bit of your background and, um, I'm excited to jump into this conversation, um, about what Provident does as a whole. And I'm thinking like it, it would probably be helpful for listeners to just give some context as to what Provident is all about, um, and kind of what we're going to be talking about. So maybe at the stage for our conversation about private equity uh, kind of moving into the medical space. Absolutely. The quick synopsis on Provident is um, we are, um, I guess, by the definition, a healthcare investment bank. Um, and what that okay. means uh, is we advise companies that are in healthcare services um, that are at kind of an inflection point in their growth trajectory where um, there's different motivations from the shareholders and uh, from the managers of the company to either uh, take some um, chips off the table in terms of cashing a portion of equity out of the business 
um, bringing in resources for further growth, uh, diversifying their overall risk within um, kind of their holding, or um, considering where the advantages of their business are with respect to their peers um, and taking on much more of an aggressive growth strategy that requires uh, outside resources at the end of the day. And so um, a lot of our clients are um, founder-owned and operated businesses. So um, a lot of times they started that business without necessarily the idea of an exit in mind. Um, and when they consider a transaction, it's their first time going through this. And so as a firm, we seek to be educational resources, uh, regardless of whether or not we kind of work with those companies through a transaction around, um, you know, what's happening in the market, why are deals going on, um, how can people who are considering a transaction be best prepared for that event when it ultimately happens. Um, and certainly for those groups that we engage with, um, just really helping them craft, um, you know, a transaction process that meets their goals and objectives, um, but doing so in a way that is, um, you know, maximizing the outcome for the, the seller side of the deal. So as a firm, we're a sell side focused investment bank, meaning okay. um, our allegiance is to maximize that outcome for shareholders that are selling equity in the business. Um, we certainly have a number of different relationships with PE sponsors and strategic players that ultimately will be good uh, partners for our clients. And we kind of help sift that buyer universe to, um, you know, something that's more manageable and, you know, appropriate for each client that we take on. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're providing kind of soup to nuts advisory services where um, for the groups that are just thinking about what a deal could look like, you know, helping educate them on, on what a transaction could mean for them. Uh, and certainly for the groups that we work with, um, essentially, you know, staging a, a competitive process where the goal is to maximize value and um, create the best outcome possible in an efficient time frame. So uh, that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot view, lots of different nuances that go into that, but um, that's kind of us in a nutshell. And uh, just given the types of groups we work with that haven't been through this before, this is the first transaction they may go through, perhaps even the last transaction that happens in their careers. Um, we understand that it's kind of a formative event in their business uh, careers. And we take that, um, you know, to heart in terms of providing you know, education, the resources to make that happen. Okay. Okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit and Dave, I want to get the perspective of the other side of it. So we have AJ here on the, on the business side of getting deals done. And then we have Dave over here who owns the offices and is someone that might be considering doing this type of thing, but maybe Dave, from your perspective, can you just give us like a high level overview of kind of what you're seeing in this space in the marketplace and um, just again i just want to get a, a different feel for it so kind of just talk about what you're seeing out there yeah uh thanks for having me on the podcast uh aj it's great to have you <clears throat> excuse me um you know what's interesting to me aj as you as you talk you know as owner operators at least in healthcare you know once you get a few offices it seems like there's a couple investment banks or advisors or uh, brokers that will start to call and ask questions you know they're they're probing hey are you interested in some type of transaction what's been interesting and fun um yet i haven't quite figured out how is how do owner operators learn to discern between different investment banks you know really what happens is is most of us will get into touch with them 
almost from a cold call. I mean, that's what it seems that, you know, they'll call, they say, Hey, are you interested? Uh, they'll start talking about some terms that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand when they first hear them, you know, EBITDA and other things that we'll probably talk about. But I guess, you know, for the listeners, for those people that do eventually get there, what is a process and, and how does an owner operator go about finding and discerning, Hey, who are the right investment bankers to work with? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it's not surprising to us at all that, you know, folks like yourself, you know, the owner operators that start to build visibility in the, you know, DSO space or whatever the case might be, start getting a lot of inbound interest about transaction activity. Um, so there's investment banks, brokers that reach out. Um, and even those investment banks and brokers may have different kind of motivations for why they're reaching out. Um, there's some groups that are buy side uh, agents. So they have a, uh, you know, a, a buyer client that has an interest in a specific parameter or geography, and they're doing a search on their behalf to try to identify acquisition opportunities for that um, potential acquirer. And so we always encourage our, um, you know, people we speak with to, you know, first discern, you know, where that person who's reaching out, what their kind of motivations are for doing so. Is it uh, to, again, tee up clients for their buy side, um, you know, arrangements or on the flip side, kind of similar to what we do, there's a number of groups that are sell side advisors. So they're seeking to understand when the right time for the company is to pursue a transaction and um, hopefully be under consideration as a group uh, to be utilized as they go about that process. Um, and I think lastly, um, and a lot of times, especially for our uh, clients that aren't necessarily familiar with PE versus VC versus investment bankers, um, because the transaction marketplace is so competitive these days, uh, private equity firms have uh, business development initiatives of their own. Um, there's you know, the strategic consolidators who are hiring business development individuals to make outreach directly to potential acquisition candidates to get ahead of that process in many instances. And so they may also be seeing outreach from those individuals who uh, want to get in front of that prospect before anybody else does. Um, and so the, the way that we consider things is that there's a huge ecosystem, right, of private equity firms, of uh, investment banks and, and all the rest. But I think common questions that we encourage people to ask are, you know, what's the nature, if it's an investment bank, what's the nature of your services? Is it buy side? Is it sell side? Do you do both? Are there conflicts of interest potentially that you're, you know, on the sell side representing dental clients, but on the buy side representing those same acquirers that might be part of a sell side process? Um, it's good to iron that out. I think it's also important to understand what the capabilities of an investment bank are. You know, how large is the team? What's their experience within the space? What does their process look like? Uh, because certainly there's groups that focus on, you know, representing clients that have, you know, call it just a million to maybe four or five million of revenue. There's groups that specialize in representing companies that have five to, you know, 20 million, 20 million to 100 million, 100 million to 500 million. And so it's important to align that kind of expertise and relationships they bring to the table. Um, and lastly, I think some of it is also kind of personality driven in nature. Um, you know, business is built on relationships and it's important to see who you could, you know, work with and, and spend time with, um, you know, going through this very important process. 
Um, so there's a number of different factors to consider, but you know, we always encourage, especially when considering potential advisors, um, you know, what's the experience, what's their buy side versus sell side, um, you know, allegiance, um, what size deal do they typically focus on? Um, and, you know, essentially from a personality standpoint, do you see yourself uh, working well with that person through this process, which can be anywhere from call it six months on the, the shortest end to upwards of a year if it's a, a complicated process. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You're going to spend a little time. You got to make sure that you can get that you can get along with the people you're going to be working with. So let's talk about from a company side. What are the most common reasons that a company considers a transaction like this? And and maybe AJ, you take it, and then Dave, I'd love to hear on your side. What are the reasons that uh, there's so many dental offices who are moving into the uh, private equity space? Uh, just kind of the pros and cons from from that side of the table too. AJ, why don't you take it first? Sure. So the common reasons we tend to see for groups to consider a transaction, I mentioned this a little bit off the top, but it tends to fall into two broad categories. Um, one is based on the shareholders' motivations for the business. Um, and we see this to be very different uh, group by group. In certain instances, there's at the simplest base, like an ownership transition that is facilitating the need for a transaction. There's, you know, we've worked with clients that they're 65 to 70 years old, they're getting ready for retirement. They realize that a lot of their personal net worth is tied up in this business um, and they want to unlock that, get some personal liquidity and move on to something else. Um, and so that ownership transition tends to be a big reason. Uh, we also see yeah. dynamics where it's kind of a shareholder risk um, you know, analysis where people see where healthcare broadly is going. They realize that size and scale is important to, uh, you know, success in, you know, the changing environment. And so they may feel that personally, they're not ready to put the bill in terms of decreasing, let's say their distributions from the business to reinvest for that, you know, uh, go forward future. And so instead of personally putting that bowl, they're considering bringing in a partner who can, mitigate some of their risk and um, allow the business to, to get where it needs to be in order to uh, be successful uh, in the long term. And a lot of times these businesses, uh, they're successful in their own right. They don't necessarily need to do something, but from a business perspective, um, there could be acquisitions they'd like to do that they simply don't have the resource to take on. Um, there may be a desire to partner with someone who has done this before uh, multiple times and can provide some strategic resources. Um, and there could be just, you know, competitive concerns in a market. Let's say, um, you know, it's a very, you know, uh, tightly bound geographic area. There's two competitors that recently went through private equity transactions. You're all competing for the same patients, and, you know, uh, acquisition opportunities it might make sense to bring in, you know, more resources behind you to continue going head to head with those others. Um, so those tend to be kind of, you know, major reasons we see from a business perspective and a shareholder perspective. I think at the end of the day, money talks as well. And uh, the valuation environment today has been, you know, on par with the highest we've ever seen. And so uh, in a lot of cases, uh, we've talked to people who say, you know, there's always a number that gets me to do it. And uh, sometimes the number, even if it's, uh, you know, the timing is a little bit different what they, than what they expected, it's just compelling enough from an economic reason to, to mm. do a transaction today. Mm. Interesting. 
Yeah. Like, what are uh, you seeing? Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm just one dentist, uh, you know, among many, but I think, you know, in the circles that I run in, I feel like a lot of dentists these days, you know, the, the times where there was one doctor in one office, those are kind of the old days, the golden age of dentistry. And I think most young guys coming out now, they envision themselves not working in one office, but at least having ownership equity in multiple offices, working in large groups. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen as we started to grow was, you know, doing it the old fashioned way, air quotes, um, is that banks, they follow a very different protocol as far as lending. And there's a lot of personal guarantees uh, that the owners are, are put on. And so as they expand and as they grow, you know, those personal guarantees start to really rack up. And I think some of the more entrepreneurial dentists and owners, um, you know, start to understand that, that that is real liability, you know, something like COVID happens or, um, you know, any kind of downturn in the economy, they, they leave themselves quite exposed. So I think that's another thing is that the ability to expand, the speed with which you can mm -hmm. expand is something that at least our group has thought a lot about is instead of having to go and, and getting financing on every single new acquisition with the bank um, and all of the onerous, you know, bureaucracy that is involved in that, not, not, you know, the least of which are those personal guarantees, you know, bringing on a strategic partner, particularly a financial partner allows that um, process to work with a lot less friction, you know, it just kind of greases the wheels and it allows, you know, good groups that, that have a, a scalable system in place, it allows them to get those acquisitions and, and do it much faster, much easier, simpler. Um, so, um, so, so in addition to the, you know, the ability to exit the business at some point, which I think is a challenge just in business in general. So it's nice to see that, that, that that's changing. But in addition to that, there's, you know, those growth, those growth oriented, maybe younger dentists, who, cause that was part of it. I, I had noticed that, um, just people we talk to are younger and still considering bringing on equity. And it sounds like that that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I think, you know, they're, they're and AJ can probably speak to this, you know, by what they see in the market. But there really are a couple different types of transactions. There's some where the owner, you know, they're done. They're older. They're ready to retire and they're ready for the beach money. So the, they realize that the, the, the money, the multiples that are getting paid right now are higher. Um, and so they're saying, hey, I'm ready to go retire on the beach and I want to exit this. And yep. uh, these transactions allow them to go do that. Typically, there will be some work back that the, the private equity company wants them to stay on for a certain amount of time. Usually um, mm -hmm. that's helpful for, for all parties. But I think more and more what we're seeing is young entrepreneurial dentists and owners really saying, hey, I'm I want to keep working for five, 10, 15 years. Um, but allow it, it frees them up to really focus on scaling the business and and kind of turn you over some of the the finances and some of those other administrative duties uh, to a to a strategic partner or a private equity firm that, that comes and helps brings resources to them. Yeah, I completely yeah, agree with sense. what Dave said. And it's funny sometimes we work with uh, you know provider businesses, especially in the physician side, where one practice may have. 30 different shareholders. And what we tend to see when they evaluate a transaction is exactly at this point, there's a cohort of 60 to 70 year olds that, you know, they're very eager to do something to cash out. Uh, we tend to see a grouping of younger entrepreneurial providers that, you know, love the opportunity to grow and kind of make a name for themselves in the industry 
um, and, you know, have the added benefit of taking some chips off the table and maybe paying off like their, you know, dental school, medical school debts, um, create a nest egg and, and position themselves well for the future. Uh, what tends to happen, and it's interesting, is that kind of the middle cohort like the people who are, you know, call it in their 50s or so, you know, late 40s uh, to 50s, they're always thinking about, well, I'm not quite at the time of retirement, but I'm also not going to be here for, you know, 30 years like my younger counterparts. How does this uh, work mm -hmm. for me long term? Um, but I think to Dave's point about the different types of deals that are out there, uh, what we're seeing across private equity is, the desire for kind of a partnership approach at the end of the day, especially for these larger businesses where uh, when the private equity firm and, you know, the, the company that they're investing into succeeds, it creates a nice outcome for everybody involved from a shareholder perspective. And so for especially those younger career partners, um, you know, they could see their shares in the business that they keep. Um, growing, you know, three, four or five times their initial value. Um, and ultimately, you know, when the private equity firm and the, the DSO in this case sells to a larger PE fund, that could be a second transaction event where they take more liquidity out of the business. And with so many of these deal tra deals transacting private equity to private equity, um, there often is kind of a like an annuity event where every call it five to 10 years or so, um, those younger partners can keep taking money out of the business um, as they sell their shares. Um, and I think especially for those mid-career partners, it tends to be some of what they've mentioned, which is around, you know, risk mitigation. Do we still want to be the ones, um, you know, putting our names on the bank documents, personally guaranteeing every single time? Uh, do we have confidence in where healthcare is going? As well as do we feel like our competitive position could actually put us ahead of uh, everybody else by let's say, doing a transaction today. Um, so there's definitely multifaceted elements uh, for all age groups to consider as they consider something mm -hmm. like this. So that's probably a good transition into deal structure. Um, let's talk a little bit about how, how deals are normally structured for, well, yeah, just in general, how are they normally structured? Yeah, so the, there's a couple of different structures that are common in the market today. Um, I'd say, you know, most often for the situation where, you know, it's a, a single owner, they're looking to exit the business. There's typically a 100% buyout option available, where especially groups that are backed by private equity or public in some cases have the wherewithal to acquire 100% of the stock of the business um, and allow the, the shareholders to exit completely. Um, that probably has been the most common transaction structure for, you know, let's say like the last, uh, you know, 15 or 20 years, especially leading up to like the boom of private equity that we're seeing today. Um, for larger organizations, especially ones that are, um, you know, led by management teams that have a view towards growth in the future, um, they may want to be the platform for consolidating a given geography. Uh, there's typically a majority acquisition element available to them where either private equity firms who are looking for their first entree into the dental space, as an example, would acquire 60 to 80 percent of a business um, and the existing shareholders of that business would retain, call it 20 to 40 percent of value in, in stock of that entity going forward. Um, and so 
I would say that comprises probably the most uh, significant number of deals across like larger businesses that have, you know, two, three million of EBITDA and up in healthcare services today, um, especially in situations where the, there's multiple providers that are also shareholders in the business. Um, the private equity firm understands that the assets are the people in a, a provider-based business, and they want to ensure that people aren't just getting a huge check and walking away day one, uh, because then, you know, what do they just buy? It's an empty office with a bunch of chairs uh, and patients that can't be seen. So there's an element that, you know, retained equity, rollover equity, you may also hear it called, um, is a way to align interest between the private equity sponsor and the um, and the, uh, the, the providers or the, the shareholder group going forward. Um, and this can also be groups that are backed by private equity. Um, so they, we call them strategics or PE backed strategics. They can also use that uh, type of majority approach. Um, what we see maybe fewer times in the market is what's called a minority recapitalization. And so that's when a private equity firm will acquire, you know, up to probably 49% of the equity in the business. Um, and so there's a fewer number of uh, PE funds that have the mandate that allow them to do minority transactions, which is why you see fewer of them in the market today. Also, um, you know, groups that have already taken on private equity, um, like DSOs that have PE backing, they typically can't make minority acquisitions because, um, you know, they don't necessarily, uh, they can't necessarily take advantage of synergies in that case. Um, and lastly, one of the things, you know, one of the reasons why people may gravitate towards a minority deal is that there's kind of the sense that as a majority owner, you have, um, you know, majority rights in terms of governance and, and how to run your business going forward. Uh, but because a lot of these private businesses are, you know, the stock isn't tradable on the open market or anything like that, um, the sponsors who are investing into a minority position still have certain rights over how you grow the business, how you deploy capital, um, you know, how financial performance is measured and tracked as an example, that almost kind of mimic a situation where it's a majority transaction to begin with. And so some of the control that people perceive in a minority transaction may not necessarily be the case. And sometimes there's also a slight discount applied to uh, a minority acquisition because there's a premium for investors that they pay in order to have kind of full kind of economic control of the business in a majority mm -hmm. perspective. But that said, there's good reasons for why people go through minority deals. It might be a stepping stone to a larger transaction event down the road and they can stomach some of the uh, governance rights, et cetera. But it's typically a mix of these hundred percent buyouts, um, you know, majority recapitalizations where it's a 60 to 80 percent acquisition and minority transactions where up to 49% of equity is purchased. And a lot of it depends on, again, the shareholder motivations, uh, what the capabilities of the buyer are, and just the, the position of the business today. Um, and so uh, certainly a lot of nuances, but hopefully that summarizes kind of the, the three key structures we see. And Dave, maybe you have some other thoughts that you see in the market. Yeah, well, I was, yeah, that's really helpful. I was actually just going to ask, like when a, when an owner comes to Provident uh, and comes to you guys to be the investment banker, are those things kind of hashed out before you try to go to market or run a public process or, you know, some of those terms people may not be as familiar with, but essentially before you put that business up for sale, is it really the, the owner and the 
and the investment banker that's really setting the tone for, hey, this is what the owner's looking for? Or is that kind of discovered, you know, once you go to market, you kind of see what's out there and, and you kind of figure it out as you go? Great question. Um, in the beginning, we always like to understand what the shareholders' motivations are. Um, if the desire, let's say it's a, an older shareholder that's 100% owner, uh, their desire is to exit, it probably doesn't make sense to kind of show them minority options, right? Because it just doesn't accomplish what they're looking for. Uh, but in a lot of cases, um, a lot of our clients, they qualify for you know either of those three structures. And we kind of walk them through the pros and cons of each to begin with. But we encourage them to keep an open mind as far as what options might exist out there. Um, and so usually what happens in our process is we're introducing a number of different partners that could take a viewpoint on uh, where they could add the most value, whether that be through 100% acquisition, uh, majority acquisition, or a minority. And we encourage everybody to bid off of kind of the, the same set of information, right? But uh, kind of put their best foot forward on where they can add value. And we encourage our clients when we have the offers in hand, we get the economics roughly similar from like a multiple of EBITDA standpoint, et cetera, to really just interact with each group, understand what their goals and visions are for the company, um, understanding if that meshes with their culture and their go forward expectations. And so at the end of the day, it becomes more of like a personality and strategy check as far as, you know, is it best for the group? Uh, from a strategic standpoint, from an economic perspective to pick that 100% deal, that majority deal or that minority deal at the end of the day. And for us, we just want to put the best options in front of them that could help achieve their goals. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, we're, you know, going into a process thinking it might be, let's say, a 100% buyout, which again is a little bit more rare these days, just depending on the sector. And it ends up being a majority recap because that's uh, what was best for the shareholders, given the, the partnership options available to them and, and vice versa. So um, we try to not prescribe any kind of one particular thing if the company uh, qualifies for all three options. Uh, but in some cases, just given the company, the size, the industry, the shareholder motivations, there may only be kind of one of those options in play at the end of the day. Hey, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to let you know that you can take the F3 assessment right now over at moneyinsights.net. And after the short five minute assessment, you'll get specific recommendations that will help you move from high income to high net worth. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, that's helpful. AJ, I, I kind of am chuckling in my mind. You know, I hear this a lot where PE or investment bankers will say something like, you know, we'll present uh, to a couple different potential uh, buyers. And in my mind, as, a, as an owner operator, I'm always thinking like, so where do these people come from that they're coming up with? And is there a carnival where you essentially all investment bankers would go and, and really it doesn't necessarily matter which private or which investment banker you're using. Everybody kind of goes to the directory or the list of, of companies that are looking for. I mean, maybe you could speak a little bit to, you know, I just wonder like what that means. I feel sometimes like there's a wizard behind the curtain and, and the owner operators don't know that they're, they're just referred to as potential buyers. Um, yeah. Where are they found? How are they sourced? And are all investment bankers really going to that same list or uh, yeah, speak to that, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, that, so the short answer is no, there isn't one list that everybody goes to and that's some of the, the secret 
into what we do on a daily basis kind of goes to, you know, the points I mentioned off, off the top, um, like does this investment bank spend most of their time in healthcare? How much work have they done in your sector? What size do they focus on? Because at the end of the day, private equity has been so successful in the returns they've able, been able to generate over the past, you know, 20 years that there's a huge proliferation of the number of funds where they're getting their capital from and their requisite experience. And so for us, um, you know, we've been in operation for, you know, 24 plus years now. So we have relationships that go back that far that are specific to healthcare, a lot of times specific to, to industries as well. But um, it's kind of uh, a number of different functions in terms of how we interact with those groups. Um, certainly, you know, uh, there's just longstanding relationships that we've had from 20 plus years ago. But what tends to happen in private equity is like um, like a, a principal, let's say, or a vice president that's become very successful at private equity group ABC. Um, they go out and decide to start their own fund. Um, and so it's keeping the relationship with those people as they start new funds, understanding where their investment thesis theses are, et cetera. Um, there's also uh, just new funds that are coming up every day. And so it's a matter of, you know, researching those, understanding what parameters they're looking to invest in, what areas of healthcare they're interested in. Um, and, you know, the, you know, uh, the finding process goes on and on and on. But really, you know, of the thousands of PE firms that invest in businesses today, our goal for each process that we go through is kind of fine tuning our understanding of where each group is spending most of their time and fitting that to the profile of our client. So there's certain PE funds that will come up repeatedly just because, um, you know, their focus aligns very closely with ours. You know, they may invest all of their fund in healthcare services or like 75% of it. And it tends to be in the size range that we represent, which is, you know, EBITDA anywhere from two or 3 million on the lower end to, you know, 25 million on the higher end. Um, but, you know, it becomes just kind of a constant curating exercise. And um, what we encourage for our clients who are thinking about hiring an investment bank is just making sure that, you know, where their relationships lie and their understanding of those private equity firms interests um, can really add value through a process. Because, you know, what we feel is you could if you bring the most qualified groups to the table who have an understanding of dental in this case, who focus on this EBITDA profile, who have missed out, let's say, from our from our market intelligence on the last three deals that came to market, that's your best chance of finding a partner that is most likely to align with your business and pay the highest valuation. Um, whereas if you're kind of printing out a sheet of a thousand groups and hoping something sticks, that's not necessarily the best use of uh, our clients' confidential information, one. Um, and two, you know, you're not really kind of spending the time on the groups who ultimately will have the, the best view of your business. And so I think especially from a PE standpoint, that's where most of the variability comes into play. Those groups who are backed by private equity and making acquisitions, I mean, everybody knows who those are. Um, but even on top of that, it matters very closely into what the investment bank's experience was with those buyers how they play in the acquisition process, what geographies they're interested in, and what um, you know the investment bank can do to leverage that interest to our clients' benefit at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and you mentioned 
focusing on getting the highest valuations. So maybe that's a good transition into the valuation conversation. So talk a little bit about how you guys go about, um, you know, creating a valuation for a business. Happy to. Um, so in healthcare services, uh, valuations are typically arrived at as a multiple of EBITDA. Um, so EBITDA yeah, you is- better define, You better define that for everybody. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Um, and we go a step further to, you know, what the accounting definition of EBITDA is to also adjust for um, non-recurring or discretionary expenses. Um, so especially for owner-operated businesses, you know, people may, um, you know, have family members on payroll that don't really do anything on a day-to-day -day basis for tax reasons, as an example. Um, there might be non-recurring expenses uh, with respect to, let's say, um, like, systems conversions or uh, big legal fees that are added back. Um, and there's also kind of one step further is, you know, you can look at EBITDA across a number of different time periods, um, but it's important to consider what is uh, baked into the growth of the business, but not yet captured in the last trailing 12 months, as an example. Um, and this is where some of like the art versus just accounting science comes into play. Um, so, for instance, during COVID, uh, a lot of groups had significant disruption to, um, you know, their revenues and earnings. And so we had to look back and see, you know, had COVID not happened, what theoretically would the earnings of the business have been? Um, and similarly, if there's certain embedded growth, um, you know, opportunities in the business that haven't fully materialized in the last 12 months, let's say, you know, in November of last year, the company was able to negotiate a big increase in their payer contracts. Um, that didn't show up in the numbers for January through October, but November and December, it may have. So kind of thinking about what that might look like over a steady state 12 month basis. And there's a whole bunch of other things that could go into performance as well, but that's the EBITDA piece. And so, um, you know, what the investment banker or any acquirer does is arrive at what they believe to be a defensible EBITDA number is. And then there's the multiple side of things, which um, it depends on a number of different factors, um, you know, size, uh, you know, risk. It's essentially a function of risk, right? So the larger the company, the more uh, growth opportunities it has, um, you know, the sector does, that it plays in. Uh, the management team even can factor into that. Um, that all contributes to the um, to the the multiple itself. And so you take you know the EBITDA basis that someone's willing to underwrite, um, the multiple that they're willing to pay for it, um, and that gives you your overall enterprise value equation. Um, that's mm -hmm. the most kind of common thing we see. Um, certainly, there's a number of other approaches we see, like smaller transactions might be valued as, you know, uh, like based on a revenue basis uh, in, you know, growing segments like the Medicare Advantage population for primary care and risk-based contracting. Those can be like per patient, like valuation counts. Um, in software, sometimes we see it based on like a revenue multiple standpoint, uh, but most often like 85% of what we see especially in dental um, and other provider-based businesses is an EBITDA-based valuation. Okay, okay. So when, um, when does it make sense for a potential owner to start considering 
the idea of private equity. I know you mentioned that you guys are normally like, you know, two, three million on the low end. Um, but just maybe hit on that. What, when, uh, during, you know, from a timing perspective, what makes sense? Yeah, it's a great question. It's so different group by group. Um, but what we think is important, especially in sectors that are quickly consolidating, like dental, as an example, is just being educated as much as possible off the bat. Um, I think it's difficult when the group decides to do a transaction, but you're kind of starting from scratch in terms of understanding where to go or what to do. Um, so, you know, just understanding like why private equity is investing in the dental space, you know, what advisors you should be kind of keeping in mind to go through a process like this. Th those advisors probably also help you understand the right time to do something as well. So that's uh, maybe a shameless plug, but uh, something that we, uh, we encourage as well. But there's also a lot of preparation steps that are important to consider when you think about a transaction. Um, you know, you think about, you know, from a financial and accounting standpoint, making sure that you know, you can produce your financial statements on a monthly basis. Could you convert them to accrual basis financials, as an example? Uh, from a legal standpoint, are there any, um, you know, structuring considerations you should be keeping in mind if you have, let's say, a, a C-Corp, um, you know, that might limit some of your options if you want to do a, an asset deal versus a stock deal, as an example. Um, and I think also maybe something that's a little bit forgotten, but we think is important at the end of the day is from like a wealth management standpoint. So mm -hmm. having someone who could help you take those proceeds you get and have that money work for you exactly. going forward, um, it is all very important. So, you know, it's just going to be different company by company. I think if yeah. someone is dead set on becoming a, a private equity platform in their own right, there's certain, you know, things we tell them to consider. So for instance, what we see in dental especially is that private equity interest starts building as a platform perspective. Uh, when you have, call it three, four million of EBITDA and up, it's important to have like a management team and platform in infrastructure in place. So we kind of encourage groups to think about that before they're fully ready to kind of harness PE interest. Uh, from a strategic standpoint, there's interest across the board, but um, you know it's so situationally dependent that we feel that it's important to encourage individuals thinking about doing a transaction just to have some of these preliminary conversations and, and get their team in order such that when the timing is right, you can hit the ground running and not necessarily run into any hiccups. Good stuff. Okay. So, so this may be an obvious question, but maybe just something that's been on my mind. Why is there so much private equity moving? To, so now we're talking about from the investor side. Again, it might just be that that's where the money is. But uh, talk a little bit about why there's so much private equity moving into this, you know, the physician um, medical dental space. Yeah, I think there's a couple different factors. Um, and investors always think about probably macro first. Um, so healthcare across the board, you know, growing need for services, the, you know, population dynamic is skewing towards, uh, you know, the aging side who needs more services than ever. Um, there's also, um, I think, a sense that certain subsectors of healthcare services, especially those that cater to like a consumer-based, um, you know, healthcare delivery system, one that is efficient and saves the entire system dollars at the end of the day, um, as well as those that 
can provide access to care in areas that are otherwise difficult for, for individuals to obtain. Um, those tend to be, you know, high priority areas for investors, knowing that there's just nascent demand for those services and there are a lot of tailwinds supporting that. Um, I think as well, what's interesting to PE sponsors in, you know, the provider-based space is that they're tremendously fragmented markets. So I think in the DSO space, Dave, you might know better. It's like only 10% of overall dentists are affiliated with the DSO, something like that at this point. Um, and that's not even considering private equity-backed DSOs. It's just DSOs in general. Um, so there's a huge um, kind of runway for consolidation. Um, and with consolidation comes the ability to leverage synergies, whether that's from a cost perspective, from a recruiting standpoint, uh, from just like a number of different factors that come into play. Um, and so, you know, keeping that in mind, um, you know, growth opportunities, fragmentation, a desire for especially sellers to participate in kind of a, a, sale, a scaled model at the end of the day, it's being undergirded by some favorable uh, like debt market trends, for instance, interest rates are really low. You can tap into debt as a cheap uh, tool for financing to build these businesses and grow. Um, and I think just underscoring everything is that PE funds have been creating pretty exceptional returns uh, in the uh, overall uh, perspective of fund managers. And so you see wealthy individuals, you see school endowments, you're seeing institutions like insurance companies allocate more and more of their um, investments towards private equity in nature. And so uh, there's just, you know, a lot of momentum just from a demand perspective from investors to offset what you might see as uh, potential volatility, especially in like the market today. Um, if you know that PE funds are going to return three to five times, but you see the stock market doing a whipsaw every day, probably more people are going into private equity as a, a safer alternative, yeah. even though it's not safer necessarily. There's more risk, certainly. Um, it's just the return profile and, you know, the the background of it is easier to kind of comprehend versus the day-to-day -day fluctuations of the stock market. And and with that shift, have you seen any uh, movement in, in terms of the valuation, like like the multiples, that kind of thing? There certainly has been, because um, it's like a supply-demand imbalance yeah. sort of thing, right? Yep. Um, there's, uh, I'd say overall valuations have continued to increase. And if you were to talk to us like two years ago, We'd say, oh, valuations are at the top. We don't think that they can go any higher. And mm -hmm. then we hear about, you know, deals going. going for 17 times EBITDA. And we're like, well, we didn't think that that was possible if you yeah. asked that two years ago. I think we're also starting to see that on a local level as well, just because, you know, there's areas like dental where there's 80 to 100 some odd PE backed groups. They're all fighting over probably a similar number of acquisition opportunities. So even those smaller assets have been valued higher than where they were before. But certainly from a platform standpoint, you know, the, the largest groups out there, uh, especially those who have, you know, pretty significant opportunity going forward, they've still been able to carry some pretty significant valuations. Uh, what I will say, though, is that people are very mindful of doing this in a sustainable manner today. So while the valuations have been as high as they were, I think what we're seeing from private equity firms is that their um, level of due diligence has also increased significantly than where it was a few years ago, because they're mindful of, you know, putting hundreds of millions of dollars behind an endeavor that may fall apart because they didn't do all their homework ahead of time. That's kind of the, you know, 
the, the market depth, if you will, for fund managers if they're not able to create good returns for their investors. So um, I think kind of goes to making sure you're prepared for a process like this. Um, you know, there's a pretty significant level of uh, due diligence that goes on. So it's important to know kind of your business inside and out before you start this process. Yeah, that makes sense. So we have a lot of uh, medical and uh, dental practitioners in our in our client base and our listeners. Um, where's like the starting point? So let's say someone's considering a transaction. What's the starting point? Where do they go? Again, they've they've heard a podcast like this. They've you know maybe they've done a little bit of due diligence and research about it conceptually. What's the starting point for someone to kind of get involved and start really considering whether doing a deal like this could make sense for them? Absolutely. I think um, a good first step is uh, certainly to talk to uh, an advisor, whether that be someone like us from an investment banking standpoint, um, if they've heard about us or their friends have worked with us or heard our podcast, whatever the case might be. Uh, again, maybe somewhat of a shameless plug. But um, I think also um, groups that maybe have like a trusted uh, legal advisor that's helped them through mm -hmm. uh, like corporate formation, other um, kind of corporate needs that have worked with investment bankers or have some perspectives of their own if they're M&A attorneys on what these deals look like and the best way to become prepared for that. Um, similarly, from an accounting standpoint, a lot of groups might lean on an external CPA uh, that is been through these types of transactions before um, and can help them think through from an accounting standpoint or just from a preparedness standpoint what the, the best steps may be. So I think at the end of the day, it's just seeking out someone that has experience in this space, whether that's in the existing Rolodex of contacts that they have or um, speaking with uh, someone maybe a little bit outside of that that comes in through their own research. Um, I think what's also interesting today is that so many transactions have happened that it's almost like an entrepreneur to entrepreneur type discussion where they may talk to an acquaintance of theirs or a friend that has gone through this process and understanding, you know, what would they have done differently um, had they known what they know today. Um, so I think we'd encourage just tapping into any network you have um, or seeking that out if possible to, to get this process started because uh, it's a really complex one and one that you want to make sure goes right. Uh, so sure, it's important yeah, to absolutely. talk to as many educated people about it as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I just think about as a business owner, how difficult it could be to, to give up control of a business potentially, right? So if you're going to do something like that, it has to be done right. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, what are potential pitfalls? What are the potential pitfalls for people considering um, and maybe, Dave, you probably you probably looked into these things too, but just maybe both of you talk a little bit about some of the the potential issues or maybe the downsides of of doing a transaction like this. I think for me, you know, I think people and AJ kind of spoke to it just now in his answer. Um, so I don't want to be redundant, but I think you know, knowledge is power, and um, yeah. you know, ultimately, I think one of the biggest mistakes I think anybody could make. We've we've our group has gone through this, you know, a process. I won't say the process because there's a number of different ways that that people transact. But we've been approached a couple different times. We've had a couple formal offers, and I look back, you know, a few years ago when we had received some of these formal offers, 
And I'm all, I almost blush at what I didn't know. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And I think a lot of times these groups, I, I don't want to say that they're doing it intentionally or that they're doing anything with malfeasance in mind. I mean, they're they're just doing good business. You know, it's America and I love that about America. Um, but I do think that without knowing and understanding all the different types of options and deal structures and whether you're going with a strategic partner, whether you're going with the capital partner, whether you're going to be the platform yourself, you know, what what those deals mean after the first transaction, going into a possible second transaction, and even a third. You know, there's so many intricacies that, you know, when we think about it, guys like AJ and and uh, these private equity firms, these are some of the smartest people that are, are around in the country. I mean, they know and they understand things. Um, so to think that that a doc who's just, you know, been sitting in some science classes and, and you know, either working with patients or filling teeth in, in my case or straightening teeth in my case, um, to think that we would understand very much after just a couple of days of talking to people, I think is it really um, minimizes how much information there really is in this space. And and so, I, you know, maybe in AJ's answer, he could just speak to, you know, it's 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 difficult because it's it's hard in a podcast like this to get that kind of a background. And there also doesn't seem to be a repository where it's like, go to YouTube and learn, you know, from A to Z, <laughs> all the different deal structures. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things that you don't know what you don't know. And so I think the longer you, the more questions you ask, the more podcasts you listen to, the more research that you do and the books that you read, at least in our own situation, we've learned so much and we still haven't gone through a transaction. And I'm sure even going through it, we would learn, you know, a ton, a ton more. So uh, that's just some random thoughts. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really, you know, uh, important what Dave just mentioned, just kind of minimizing some of the information asymmetry that exists, because if you deal with the buyer directly, they know a lot more oftentimes about the, the overall process than you do. So mm, just making yeah. sure that there's a level playing ground one way or the other. Um, I think as well, where we see some pitfalls is are when, especially you have uh, different motivations among, let's say a shareholder group or a management team that haven't been quite fully addressed before you go through a process like this. Um, if uh, sometimes we see scenarios where there's one kind of CEO figure uh, or lead partner that essentially goes down this process and then figures they can pitch it to their minority partners uh, at the, the finish line and hope everything's okay uh, without necessarily creating that level of transparency among the people who need to be in the know to ask their questions, have the knowledge as uh, Dave mentioned. Um, so setting kind of expectations around um, you know, why the, the shareholder group wants to do this? Does it make sense to explore it as a group and at least see what's out there uh, versus, let's say, you know, creating, um, you know, misalignment of uh, information for, for the people that need to be in, in the know? You know, that, that tends to be a big uh, reason why deals may stumble. Um, and I think, you know, certainly the, uh, you know, there's a number of other nuances that go into it. Like, for instance, an accounting standpoint, that's probably the area where we see most lower middle market deals fall apart because mm. they're not audited financials in most cases. Uh, oftentimes it might be someone who's wearing the hat of COO and bookkeeper and, you know, front desk person and just maybe that's a, a stretch that's doing yeah. the books at the same time. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that we encourage from a financial perspective, just to ensure that things uh, will go smoothly um, through a process like this. But 
I think it's ultimately having kind of a good alignment of expectations and uh, motivations because, you know, personalities have a lot more to do with how transactions happen, especially in this uh, kind of landscape that we're talking about compared to, let's say, you know, the big PE back groups where a decision is really made just on financial returns. For, you know, a founder-owned business, it's very personal and, um, you know, there's legacy involved and and things like that. So just having everybody working in the same direction and and on the same timeline is important. Mm, Like it. Okay. This has been like super informative, AJ. Um, What did we miss? Is there anything in this kind of world that we've been talking about that we should have talked about and didn't, or did we cover it? No, I think you guys asked a lot of really good questions and hit uh, the high, hard topics that we often address with uh, our clients when they're going through similar exploration conversations like these. We could probably go down a rabbit hole for hours and hours <laughs> of other questions, I'm sure, but uh, nothing else comes to mind from Okay, well, at side. least we have a good high-level overview then, it sounds like. Um, and how can our listeners get connected with you? How can they get in contact with you? What's the best way? Yeah, I'm happy to uh, share my email address, my phone number uh, as a good way to get in touch with us at Profit. Please. Um, my email is uh, A-S-H-E-K-A-R at ProvidentHP.com. Um, and you can also go to our website, ProvidentHP.com, um, and you can find our contact information there as well. Awesome. Okay, so ProvidentHP.com. You can also reach out to... Rod and I, and we are happy to pass along uh, information to AJ. Okay, well, I think we covered it then. Uh, Dave, thanks for being a guest host. It was helpful to have an insider perspective. We super appreciate it. And AJ, it was really great to have you on. Thanks for all of the information. Um, I'm certain that we'll have some people who are wanting to get in contact with you. So we appreciate you having, we appreciate you coming on with us. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you, but uh, with the three of you anyway. And um, you know, looking forward to hopefully doing something again in the near term. Awesome, that sounds great. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.